This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, each week I answer your dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And hey, while you're at it, follow this podcast at Ask a Matchmaker and my company at Agape Match. I'll include the links in my bio. This week's guest is author and friend Jennifer Wright. Jennifer Wright is the author of numerous pop history books from Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues, and The Heroes That Fought Them, parentheses, go buy this book. I love it. It's just amazing. To the upcoming She Kills Me, True Tales of History's Deadliest Women. Again, go buy this. Now, I am pre-recording this. So as you are listening to this, the book was just released 24 hours ago. So go get it. She's also written for the New York Times, the New York Post, the New York Observer, the NewYorker.com. Okay, enough. A lot of New York. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and favorite writer, Daniel Kibblesmith. Oh, and uh, she has a new baby. You can pre-order She Kills Me by visiting the link in the episode notes. I have already ordered my copy in hard print as I do all of Jen's books. But this time, I also ordered this book in Audible. I am a true crime junkie, and I just know this is going to become a favorite links are in the episode notes. Check it out. Jennifer, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you. It is so nice to be here. Uh, it's so nice to like talk to you. I feel like it's been forever. And, oh, you know, we are actually friends. <laughs> I know. We're friends in real life. Um, I feel like having a newborn and our baby just turned three months old uh, yesterday sucks up a huge amount of time. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time to have a baby and a book coming out. Yeah, you have a lot of things happening. And I feel like when you weren't when this was while this was happening to you, like I was also raising a baby last year in the beginning of a pandemic. So it's just like, just we haven't had that through COVID. Uh, Uh, Yeah, I didn't really have a choice, Jen. But (laughs) you you had the choice. You you had the choice. I did not have the choice. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was fun. It was good. Uh, that was uh, you know I, I'm just glad we're here to talk about your book. Anytime you have a book, yeah. I get just so excited. So anytime you have a new book coming out, I always just get so excited. In fact, I hosted a book party for you a lifetime ago uh, from one of your first books. Mm-hmm. Um, it ended badly. The thirteen worst breakups. Yes, that was um, a fantastic party. That was a fun, that was such a fun party. But now, you know, you have this new book, She Kills Me. And I I just immediately, it was like, oh, you have a book. We have to talk about it. So I'm really happy you're here. Let's talk about She Kills Me. So how many stories are we talking about? We're talking about 40 stories of different women who were killers, some of whom were psychopaths, some of whom I think were entirely justified in their actions. So you have a pretty broad span of people, but maybe most interestingly to your viewers, you also have 
a huge number of people who killed their husbands or who otherwise killed abusive partners, which when you realize how hard it was to get a divorce for most of history is really understandable. For a lot of women, if you were trapped in an abusive marriage, the only way you were getting out of it was by slipping a little poison into your husband's soup. So when you were choosing these 40 stories, what time periods were you looking at? You know, it's an incredible range of time. It goes from ancient Rome. There's Lacoste of Gaul, who was Nero's official poisoner, who made a huge fortune off of being a master poisoner. And it was acknowledged as like a profession that she was very good at at the time. Uh, she helped kill Nero's rival for the throne by... Uh, um, putting, uh, okay, so they were having dinner and uh, they were having wine and the wine was heated and there was a taster for all of the wine. So uh, the wine was heated up. It was, I guess, chilly out. So they're having lovely mulled wine. The taster tastes the wine. It's fine. And then remarkably, Nero's brother dies after drinking the wine. And uh, yes, it, but, you know, people say it, it must not have been poison. He just had a random spasm and died. It's because Lacosta put the poison in water that he was using to cool his wine down. So uh, just horrible, clever little tricks like that. Uh, there's also a story about her poisoning Nero's stepfather, uh, Claudius, First by putting poison in a dish of mushrooms, but Claudius had a feather that he would tickle his throat with if he suspected he had been poisoned. So she put poison in the mushrooms, and then she also poisoned the feather. So when Stop he, it. Now, oh, yes, he was brilliant. He was a genius. Uh, she was also a relentlessly evil woman. Nero loved her a lot. She had a huge villa as a result of the work she did for him. So I think she's the earliest one. And then we kind of work up to Nazi killers and British spies like Virginia Hall who killed hundreds of Nazis working in the resistance, despite being a woman at a time when very few women were able to be employed as spies and only having one leg. Uh, so uh, so uh, Virginia Hall really overcame a lot to be uh, Britain's most notorious spy. Does most of the book focus on serial killers, like female serial killers? <gasps> Some of them only have one kill, so okay. all of them killed at least someone. But right. uh, um, I would say it's, I would say it's like fifty-fifty serial killers versus people who killed one person in a really interesting way. Can you give me an example of such like that one kill that was so interesting? Uh, Christina Edmonds is one of my favorite obscure little stories. Christina Edmonds was a Love Lauren case. She was, this was in the early 1900s, she was in love with her doctor, who was very happily married. Um, she lived all by herself in a very large house that had been left to her by her mother. And, mm -hmm. you know, she, she was flirting with her doctor a lot, and her doctor was a little uncomfortable, and he said, you know, you must be kind of lonely all by yourself in that big house. Would you like my wife and I to come and visit you sometime for dinner? And she said, yeah, sure, I'd love that. And he said, okay, you should stop by my house and meet my wife. I'm, I'm sure you two will get along. And Christina Edmonds went over and 
when uh, the doctor saw his wife that night, his wife was shaking and terrified and informed him that Christina Edmonds had tried to feed her a poison chocolate. She'd given her a chocolate that was filled with strychnine. Um, the wife only ate half of it and spat it out immediately. It still caused her to vomit. So uh, she told her husband about this. Her husband immediately went to Christina Edmonds' house and said, what the hell are you doing? I'm going to call the police. And uh, she said that this was just a horrible mistake. She must have bought some poison chocolates. And that is a terrible excuse. But, okay, this very credulous doctor believed her. And over the next summer, a ton of people started buying poison chocolates from the local store. And eventually, one young child was given a bag of chocolates by his uncle. He ate them all. He died. It was horrible. And Christina Edmonds started a petition against the elderly owner of the candy shop, who was almost blind at this point. Uh, but she tried to sue him and rally the town against the candy shop. Except people noticed that Christina Edmonds had also been buying huge quantities of strychnine. So what she'd been doing is she had been buying chocolates, taking them back to her house, injecting them full of strychnine, and then returning them to the store to try to convince the doctor that she just randomly got a poisoned box of chocolates. She was eventually sent to an insane asylum. What I find interesting about this specific story is that the doctor's wife had half a chocolate and immediately recognized mm. the... I don't know. She recognized that this something was not tasting right and spit I it out. I know that a lot. I think I would eat it. I think I would feel like I had to be polite to this weird person in my house who brought chocolates. Right. But a, so she spit out half a chocolate, but a child who I would say, you know, most children are connoisseurs of chocolate, chocolate just yeah. based on like the amount that they eat without mm -hmm. thinking about the consequences. He ate uh, several chocolates without realizing that there's issues it's with really them. really bad. Yeah. I don't know. I think... Uh, Okay, first of all, I, I mean, I have a baby right now. She's very in a stage where she enjoys putting anything in her mouth. And I feel like she she would, we're, we're going to have to like keep her away from poison chocolates in the future. That's a good idea. Has your daughter started to uh, teeth yet? She's teething right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It gets, well, it gets so much worse. Yeah, there's a lot of biting her hands biting the teething ring, biting various stuffed animals, sure. biting my hands. Yeah, where, yeah she's, she's, in a, she's in a big putting things in her mouth phase. But she's not putting poison chocolate, and not that yet. is what is important. That's what we need to keep her away from. So one of the things that uh, kind of stuck out when getting the preview of your book, and I honestly, I just can't wait to read it. I know when this episode goes out, I'll be, I've, I've already listened to everything. So I'm just very excited to binge this. But one of the things that kind of struck out to me was two things. One, I never think of women as predators. I always think of, I don't, I, I don't know how to explain it. Like I always think of if a woman is killing, it must be for revenge. But you've just given me two stories of like, I don't know, early stage, I don't know if it's capitalism when it comes to the Roman empire, there but you know, she has a service yeah, and she's yeah. providing it. And then also here it's like, Predator, like this is a person who's trying to commit mass death. Well, she she was trying to commit romance, Maria. 
Oh, is that what that is? Okay. <laughs> but in the process, she ended up killing people. Yes. So it's it's a very it's also a very wide range. I think you can find women who kill for all the reasons that men kill. You can also find people who kill for very very understandable reasons. Probably the most sympathetic story in the book to me is Celia, a slave, uh, which was a great court case in the antebellum South where Celia was a slave who was routinely being raped by her master. She went to him and told him that if he kept raping her, she was going to kill him. She told his children that their dad needed to stop raping her or she was going to kill him. He, uh, he raped her one more time and she killed him. And I think pretty much anybody in that situation can agree that she gave him very fair notice and that she behaved in a way that I think we can sympathize with and seems incredibly reasonable. And uh, certainly modern people operating under modern standards would all agree that that is very clearly self-defense. Was it seen as self-defense in a court of law at that time? Um, I don't want to spoil um sure let's leave leave it for the book leave it for the book that's a good one and the second thing that stood out you know in the description of your book it says that this is a venn diagram of feminism and true crime can you tell me more about that um well okay to me feminism means that women are equal to men and equal to men and their passions it doesn't mean that women are all angels and mothers and oh if we had female leaders the world would be so much gentler and such a better place it means that women are capable of behaving in ways that are comparable to men and one of those ways is behaving very very badly and um, being so angry that you are willing to kill someone And I think that's something we don't associate with women. Up until the 1970s, there was this perception that there are no female serial killers. And that was Mm -hmm. certainly not what I found when investigating this book. There are many female serial killers, but there is still a general perception that if a woman is involved in a crime, she must be a victim of that crime. That uh, when you watch... When you watch, you know, most most true crime dramas, if you are a woman, I think you worry that you will be the person being killed. You do not think of yourself as being the person doing the killing. And uh, it's true that men do kill much, much more than women. But that doesn't mean that women are incapable of it. Um, there are certainly a, <laughs> certainly a lot of women who were very capable of it. And sometimes were the most effective murderers because nobody expects them to be murderers. Is every woman in that's featured in your book like caught in the end, or are there any murders that you know eventually would be found out in history's passing? I mean, I think it depends on um, the, the context in which they do murder. So I was very <laughs> impressed. There are chapters on female lead, female queens and generals who obviously kill in the course of battle, and their opponents seem to like love them for it. Like Roman generals get really into female leaders of uh, various tribes who attack them in battle. One of the great examples to me is Katrina Sforza, who was a, a Renaissance Italian woman who when her castle was attacked had her children taken hostage. 
And uh, the opposing army thought, like, okay, well, we've got her. We've got her kids now. And uh, she supposedly flipped them the bird and then stood up on the ramparts, lifted up her skirt, showed them her genitalia, and screamed, kill them if you want. I have the means to make more. Stop it. Yeah, and they were so confused that, A, they did not kill her children. She was able to hold her castle long enough for reinforcements to arrive. She won. Uh, She killed all of those men um she tied one of them to the back of a horse and drove him around the um town square twice and then she had his heart cut out in front of people and she was later captured by the borgias who to their credit uh decided they were going to treat her as an honored guest and not as an opponent they gave her a beautiful villa to live in and tons of servants and just kind of treated her to like a very elaborate hotel stay i honest to god hope i hope the netflix and apple tv and hulu gods listen to this episode podcast episode so that they may grant you a 40 episode series about because i i want to see this i want to see i want to visualize this everyone knows braveheart exactly no one you know but i haven't heard of this i've never even heard of this woman she was 36 at the time she was doing this i'm 36 i don't have confidence (laughs) i'm like i can have a dozen more children was uh was very bold for a 36 year old woman i'm 35 like I, i might only have one so yeah yeah that's just i want to see this i you know i don't know let's uh if you're listening to this and you're enjoying it and you've got connections please get us for a mini series i think i I want this mini series who would play her let me think oh you know what it would be that girl from stranger things oh 11 yeah shave her head i I imagine this woman has a shaved head for whatever reason i don't know why i mean there are certainly a lot of women in this book who do have shaved heads (laughs) (laughs) so jennifer is going to indulge us with a reading of her book we're going to be talking about poisoning and ex-husbands whenever you're ready okay in 1851 the british house of lords attempted to ban women from buying arsenic as too many were using it to poison their husbands truly it was a scary time for men in england Not only were women pushing for better workplace conditions and beginning to suggest that they would like to vote, now men feared that their wives were going to poison them, largely for being awful. At the time, a woman was considered a man's property and he had full control of her earnings, land, and children. If the man became abusive, a woman had very little recourse and if she fled, she would have to relinquish her children and all her property to her abusive husband. Widowhood was more or less the only way to achieve financial and social independence. And so, poison. Women often weren't sufficiently physically strong enough to outright murder their husbands, but they could easily slip a dose of arsenic into his food or drink. It was virtually undetectable, and the symptoms, like diarrhea or vomiting, were also found in countless other diseases of the time. If you were found out, since it was a white odorless substance, you could easily say that your stupid feminine brain mistook it for salt or sugar. In the years between 1843 and 1851, 16 English women were found guilty of poisoning family members with arsenic. That's not admittedly a huge number. However, despite the fact that 90% of spousal homicides were committed by men, the Earl of Carlisle became so concerned that he slipped a clause into the sale of arsenic regulation bill, stating arsenic must be sold to none but male adults. 
The House of Lords initially accepted the amendment, but due in part to John Stuart Mill's intervention, that section of the bill was ultimately overturned. Shopkeepers still had to keep records of who bought arsenic, where they lived, and the purpose of their purchase. The precautions weren't entirely effective. As the British Journal of Hematology noted, such laws relating to the sale and purchase of arsenic may have contributed to fewer arsenic-related murders, but they still continued, as evidenced in the late 20th century, by 13 convictions of women poisoning their husbands for insurance money in Philadelphia and California. Arsenic, a classic. <laughs> uh, a certain classic. Uh, that is That is incredible, and it's not something that... I've always wondered, I mean, there's still laws like this when it comes to household items. Oh, yeah. Not just arsenic, just in general. I mean, even Benadryl, right? Yep. And that's for other reasons, but nonetheless. Yeah. It's, it was also genuinely surprising to me in the course of researching this book, realizing how often poison was a woman's method of choice. That uh, one, of, one of the most notable female poisoners was Julia Tufana who sold poison in bottles that were made to look like cosmetics. So mm. women could just have them on their nightstand very easily. This was in the 1600s. And she sold them to women who were planning to get out of their abusive marriages by poisoning their husbands. And it, it led to supposedly so many deaths that the Pope made a statement about how, like, there, there are too many young, attractive widows around right now. Like, I, I think something bad is going on. Do you think this is why certain religions and denominations banned makeup? Um, no, I think that's because they believed in witches. Ah, <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with the idea that a woman could trick a man by uh, by adopting a false face when she really was not that young or attractive and uh, deceive him about, for instance, her capacity to bear children. So uh, the, that, I think, is generally more of the makeup thing. But, you know, if you had a bottle of uh, aqua tofana, you could also be using that to poison your husband. It also had a picture of St. Nicholas on the bottle, so... You know, think about that whenever you're looking at like a Coca-Cola bottle with a Santa Claus logo on the side. I guess now as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, like, if I hated George, mm -hmm. how could I kill him without <laughs> such a dark conversation? <laughs> um, how could I kill him without anyone finding out? Poison and, is the um, only way. I, uh, I but these women got found out. Um, most of them didn't. <laughs> These are the ones that we know about, and they were right. monster poisoners, poisoning a ton of people. Uh, it's estimated that hundreds of women purchased aquatafana, and most of them just, you know, became widows. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, there's actually, I can take a moment to read it. There was one really interesting passage from uh, a journal about it that. Um, that I thought was really interesting in terms of how this worked if you were a poisoner. One magazine, this is Balou's Monthly Magazine from the 1800s, talks about how poison's greatest asset is that it's remarkably hard to detect. So in the case of Aqua Tofana, to save her fair fame, the wife would demand a post-mortem examination. Result, nothing, except that the woman was able to pose as a slandered innocent, and then it would be remembered that her husband died without either pain, inflammation, fever, or spasms. If after this, the woman within a year or two formed a new connection, nobody could blame her for everything considered, it would be a sore trial for her to continue to bear the name of a man whose relatives had accused her of poisoning him. 
So, uh, Aqua de Fano was made out of arsenic, lead, and belladonna. And each of those ingredients is deadly on their own. So, when they were mixed together, they could kill a man with as few as four drops. But at the first drop, a man would just experience symptoms similar to that of a cold. With the second, he would have a flu-like experience. With the third, he'd be bedridden. And by the fourth, he would be found dead. So you would just do it over a little bit of time. And then, by the way, don't murder anybody. Um, nobody yeah, listening. I don't plan on it. Nobody not, listening yeah. to this should kill anybody. These are merely <laughs> interesting stories. Please do not say Jennifer Wright taught me how to murder someone. <laughs> uh, that's I, actually the perfect way to end this episode, I Jennifer. Will, I will say that when I was uh, when I was writing this, I I think that the experience of having a child with Emma has only made me more devoted to my husband and yeah. more aware that there is just no way I could be doing this on my own. And I strongly, strongly feel and have thought about this now that if anybody murdered him and escaped justice, I now have the means to hunt that person down and avenge him. So with four drops, you have to chase oh, yeah, someone with like a dr- with an eyedropper. Oh you yeah, know? no, no, I can do it. I'll get I'll get into Starbucks. Like I'll I'll figure out what Starbucks they work at, and I'll I'll apply for a job. I'll apply for a job. I'll wait until they come in, and then it's my time. So, uh, so that is my plan for avenging my husband and and daughter if anybody goes after them. So I feel well prepared for that. <laughs> This has taken such a dark turn and I am here for it. I love it. And uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Jennifer, thank you for coming to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we could talk about this really dark topic. Me too. And where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jen Ashley Wright, or you can visit my website at jenashleywright.com. And uh, She Kills Me should be available wherever books are sold. And support your local independent bookstores. If you are about to buy her book, you can also visit the link in the episode notes to follow Jennifer and also buy her book or buy the audible of her book. It's going to be really exciting. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. As I mentioned previously, if you'd like to speak to me on an upcoming hotline episode, follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria. I'll post the link on Wednesdays and we'll chat then. Until then, you can learn more about what I do or enroll in an upcoming Agape Intensive by visiting agapematch.com services. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable and don't poison anyone, please. See you next week. <laughs>